847 is 366 and 7. Hello and welcome to A Score to Settle, a podcast about movie and TV music. I'm your host, Brian McVicker. Each episode, I focus on music composed for film and television, whether through analyzing a specific score, uh, taking a deep dive into a particular uh, composer, or by way of interviews with guests, uh, both those in the industry and also fellow fans. In this episode... My first segment uh, is about Michael Kamen's score for The Adventures of Baron Munchausen, uh, released in 1988 and directed by Terry Gilliam. So the film is set in the 18th century, um, and it's about uh, an, an aristocratic sort of teller of tall tales. There's been other movies about Baron Munchausen and books about you know the character of Baron Munchausen. Um, and uh, all of these tall tales that he would tell about his his the adventures in his life. Uh, so the movie is uh, basically as wild a fantasy as they come. Um, it's it's really you know while it is sort of you know a fantasy movie, it's something more akin to a fairy tale than something like the the fantasy elements that you'd find in uh, a Harry Potter movie or Lord of the Rings, where there's still sort of an internal logic to how things work. Um, but uh, the uh, Adventures of Baron Munchausen, the 1988 version, it's very visually rich. Uh, it's very a very visually rich movie. Uh, Terry Gilliam shot it in Italy uh, with an Italian crew, and uh, it's sort of brimming with uh, Terry Gilliam's off-the-wall and imaginative uh, imagery. Um, Gilliam's background is uh, both as an actor and an animator in the Monty Python uh, comedy troupe. And uh, so that background is on display here uh, in his movie. Um, there's even a sequence when the main characters, um, they're adrift at sea, and then they wind up climbing a rope up to the moon. So it's, it's it, you know, it can be pretty, like I said, off the wall and imaginative. Um, but uh, the film also kind of has a wicked wit uh, and sort of these satirical archetypes in a lot of the characters. So there there are times where you... The, a little bit of the Monty Python feel comes through, but it's not like watching Monty Python and the Holy Grail or Life of Brian. It's still its own sort of uh, its own sort of universe. But there's just sometimes some of those quirky, you know, like I said, odd moments of of wit. Um, it's also a movie with a lot on its mind. Um, it it kind of takes on uh, heady topics such as uh, truth versus reality which according to this movie they're not entirely synonymous. Uh <laughs> there's 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 reality and then there's your truth. And so as you watch the movie and you hear about these adventures of the main character Baron Munchausen and how he tells his life's adventures, um it's only his truth is not always in line with what reality is. Um but the movie also grapples with the concept of mortality, uh, especially one's own mortality and what kind of legacy that we leave behind. So there are some, you know, uh, like I said, some weighty topics that are tackled there, but it's it's a movie that's still, um, you know, kind of tonally very um, fanciful and lighthearted, and 
it's uh it, like i said it's got moments of whimsy um but uh it's it's actually something that i i think is overall it's it's a pretty it's a pretty winning movie uh, I, I came across Baron Munchausen on cable probably around 1989. I missed it in theaters in 1988. Um, I learned later that the studio really shortchanged Terry Gilliam on that front. They didn't put a, uh, they didn't really market it very well or put it in a lot of theaters. Um, so when I saw it on cable, I was immediately captivated with all of its imagery and the wild story turns. Um, but most especially, it was the music of uh, composer Michael Kamen. So I, I don't think I'd see, yet seen a movie at that time with his music. Um, and so this became sort of this marvelous introduction um, and an immediate favorite. Uh, I, I immediately sought out that uh, soundtrack on, uh, on album, so I probably bought it on cassette back then in 89. Um, now, I'm not sure whether it was a case of first equals favorite, which sometimes happens with, you know, where we find a particular artist or a composer, and the first thing we buy is 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 our favorite, and somehow somehow remains a favorite, regardless of its merit. Uh, apart from that, but I actually think that objectively, Michael Kamen's score for Baron Munchausen should always rank among his top works. It's um, just full of um, just wonderful melodies, um, a lot of variety. Um, it's a very joyful score, um, and I think it kind of shows off a lot of what he's capable of or what he was capable of as a composer um, uh, when he was working in the industry. So, you know, Kamen responded to the movie, uh, which this was his second film with uh, Terry Gilliam. He also scored um, Terry Gilliam's Brazil back in uh, 1985. And, uh, but came and responded with a score of immense variety. And like I said, um, there's a, there's a lot of moments of beauty and there's a lot of moments of whimsy. Um, and the spine of it though, the spine of the score is his theme for Baron Munchausen himself. It's this noble theme, um, that's threaded throughout the score. It's really never far from your ear. Um, and it's heard in all different permutations, um, like I said, it has kind of a broad, noble quality to it. It's sort of heroic in direction, but not quite like a Robin Hood. Instead, it's 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 all it's it's got a heroic character, but it also has these shades of aristocracy, these shades of royalty. I think because it still has these moments of ornamentation where it's a little bit you know frilly around the edges. Um, and I like to think that this is the theme that the Baron Munchausen hears in his head to describe his adventures that if anyone was knew his the reality of those situations they wouldn't maybe write something as heroic he wouldn't have a heroic theme but the baron munchausen in his mind these are his adventures and this is his heroic theme that he hears in his head um but this is uh, heard in one of the best presentations of the theme in the score um in a cue called the balloon
So as you might have picked up there in that uh, particular piece, there is the other major component of, of uh, the score uh, from Michael Kamen, uh, which is it heavily references elements that, were, that are found in Baroque, in the Baroque and classical eras of Western classical music. Uh, for anyone who doesn't know, like, you know, when you use the term classical music, sort of an all-encompassing umbrella, you know, there's actually individual periods, you know, within that, you know, within Western classical music. Um, there's Baroque, and there is actually an era called classical. Um, it has its own unique sort of features and, and tenets, which then led into other areas, other periods after that, like Romantic and Post-Romantic and Impressionism. Um, but for this score, probably because of the time period of the movie is being set in the 18th century, um, Michael Kamen drew a lot on those, um, like I said, those elements found in Baroque and classical uh, eras of classical music. Um, so this included like period-specific instruments, such as harpsichord, uh, man- mandolin, cornet, um, smaller instrumental groupings, so just, you know, of, of 10 to 12 people, not always using the full orchestra, um, just smaller groups of people, smaller groups of players, as well as the actual compositional styles of the eras um, utilized um, by Bach or Corelli or Haydn, others of that Baroque and classical era. So it's it's interesting, he kind of, you know, has this transitional period that he's sort of um, referencing obliquely in in the movie but it helps set the time period and i think it also plays to uh the baron's character as well um but it also gives it a lightness of texture um i think that there's an elegance to it um and uh, with all of the trills and the ornamental gestures um that that really help keep the movie afloat it doesn't get weighted down um it kind of gives it a lot of energy and, and verve um, but here's an example that you can hear of, of some of the, the period-specific instruments um, in this cue, a portion of this cue called the town. For a bit of context before we move on to the next example, um, Michael came and studied composition and oboe at uh, Juilliard, and uh, he wrote works for the ballet, for the concert stage, um, and then he also spent time arranging uh, music for notable pop and rock bands, um, basically uh, you know, um, spent a number of years doing that. Um, some of those bands included Pink Floyd, um, the Eurythmics, artists such as Kate Bush, um, but he noted in interviews that he really loved collaborating. That was just something he really got a lot out of, and he loved writing for every genre. He didn't really see himself as a Hollywood composer. He didn't see himself as just a, a rock and roll guy. Um, he could, he, he, I think he liked sort of dabbling in all genres of music, and he was immensely talented at it. Um, I, I like to think he kind of excelled at sort of a pastiche style. He, he sort of meshed 
together different idioms and styles uh, together fluidly, um, which I think you can hear here in the Adventures of Baron Munchausen. Um, so continuing with this particular score, so um, and then you know talking about the um, the, the period specific references as far as Baroque and classical era. Um, here you'll hear is there basically an example is there are shades of Mozart's Requiem that can be detected in this section, this particular cue from late in the movie, where he uses orchestra, mixed choir, singing Latin and a harpsichord um, in the style of that classical period. Um, this was a time when choral works were attaining more status um, associated with, with composers like Mozart or Beethoven or Handel. Um, so here's a little, uh, a little bit of that, that particular uh, style being utilized here in the score. So one of my most favorite moments of the uh, both the film and the score um, occurs, uh, you know, earlier in the movie when the core characters they all sort of ascend on this giant balloon and they're escaping a, the city that's under siege, and uh, as they float upwards between the uh, the clouds, which are kind of these really nice, you know, sort of uh, pink hued clouds, um, there's this real rapturous ascending phrase from the strings, which. Um, really struck out, you know, uh, really, really stuck out to me when I watched the movie, and it's always been a favorite moment of of, uh, of mine from this score and from Michael Kamen's work overall. I just think it's a really beautiful moment, um, and uh, this is an example of that here. Um, and there, another sequence um, after that balloon uh, sequence that's just absolute pure magic is there's a waltz that takes place in midair. Um, of course, this is before La La Land. Uh, <laughs> other movies that might have had sequences like that, but um, there's a, a waltz sequence that takes place in midair between uh, Baron Munchausen, which um, I did mention is played by uh, the actor John Neville in this role. Um, and he in the sequence is with uh, the goddess Venus um, here played by Uma Thurman. Um, it's only her second movie actually. 
Um, but Michael Kamen takes that Baron Munchausen theme, that one that, you know, I talked about being noble and heroic, and he he places it in a, a, a waltz arrangement. It's really lovely. Um, and, but it still has these, it's still full of these strident flourishes. Um, it's, it's, you know, it still has this pomp to it, you know, so it's, it's this lovely waltz. Um, but it's, it's got very strident moments in it. Um, but it's a, it's a real highlight, I think, of, uh, of the score and of the movie. Um, interestingly, around this same time, uh, Michael Kamen was emerging as a uh, popular go-to composer for action movies, which I don't think he ever really thought that he would mm, sort of move into that genre. But uh, the year prior to this, he scored the original Lethal Weapon in 1987. Um, and then in the same year as Baron Munchausen in 88, he also tackled Die Hard. Um, and that kind of uh, put him on the map and sort of cemented him as, as like I said, a go-to guy um, for uh, with certain directors and also just, you know, movies of that genre, um, and especially those that uh, Jolt uh, Silver produced back then. But he afterwards, he provided music for all the three Lethal Weapon sequels, the next two Die Hards, um, Last Action Hero, The Last Boy Scout, and a few others. Um, he would lend them a sound which he once called orchestral violence, quote unquote, <laughs> um, lending that orchestral violence to the excitement on screen. I, I sort of like the term also orchestral acrobatics, um, where it's, uh, it's very dynamic, uh, it's very exciting stuff. Um, often, you know, uh, very rhythmic and uh, a lot of brass. Um, it's, it's, I find it a lot of fun to listen to. Um, and many film music fans really love his work, um, in those movies. I, I really also love his work for the Lethal Weapon and, and uh, Die Hard series. Um, but Baron Munchausen didn't call for the same approach, yet there is a massive battle sequence towards the end of the movie um, that receives a thunderous accompaniment from the orchestra. Again, as, as this is my first Michael Kamen album, and when I heard this track, it just blew me away. I really wanted to hear more of him, of that sound from him, and so that's kind of what I sought out in, in those other action movies, but this was just, uh, this really blew my socks off.
Now, there are also some surprising twists to be heard. Uh, it's not all sonorous orchestral pomp and circumstance in the score. During the sequence on the moon, which I briefly mentioned that the characters had uh, climbed to uh, on a rope, uh, Kamen introduced, uh, he introduces some strange and quirky sounds, including clocks, uh, kazoos, woodblocks, chimes, slide whistles, and uh, and more, All basically all to underscore uh, this character called King of the Moon. He's really unusual, but he's uh, played by an uncredited Robin Williams. So you can imagine right there, if I say the, you know, the, the word Robin Williams, you know exactly what, you know, how off the wall uh, at, uh, his performance can be, but he's actually not credited in the movie. Um, but the imagery in this sequence is very strange and abstract, um, and, and, and it almost does befit a little bit more of uh, Terry Gilliam's um, time on Monty Python. Um, but yeah, so like the imagery is weird, and so is the music, uh, as we can hear in this example. So you might have heard uh, Baron Munchausen's theme in that sample there, uh, and all those strange instruments, the kazoos and everything. So again, it's just another example of how many different permutations Michael Kamen was putting the Baron's theme through um, throughout the whole score. Like I said, he just threaded it through in so many different ways um, that uh, the more you listen to the score, it just it comes out in so many. You'll you'll hear it all over the place. So it's sort of like you know having um, you know. Uh, Luke's theme all over Star Wars or something. Here we have the Baron Munchausen's theme throughout all of his entire score. So it's very much, you know, it's it's the theme. Like I said, it's built around his theme is the is really the spine of of the score. Um, but you know, uh, one of the things that I remember uh, reading there's a book uh, called Gilliam on Gilliam, and it's uh, all these interviews with uh, it's with Terry Gilliam about his um, about his movies. Um, and in the chapter where he's talking about, uh, Baron Munchausen, one of the things that he's talking about is he's, uh, he sort of bemoans the, um, running time of, of Baron Munchausen. He, that he has preferred a, a three, a three hour, not three minute, a three hour running time. And the studio made him cut it down to two hours. And he thinks that it's just, that it whizzes by. And, um, one of the things that he noted that uh, is that uh, Michael Kamen's music uh, is probably, he says, quote, too loud and too in your face, unquote. Um, and because the movie isn't allowed to breathe, which I find interesting because I, there's also an interview I remember and I couldn't find it. Um, but Michael Kamen had said something similar where he felt like he his music was a little too overstuffed for the movie that it, I think it was sort of like almost, and I'm paraphrasing, encrusted with gold. <laughs> Um, with all of the ornamentation that he added to the music. 
And I think you remember him mentioning he should have pulled back sonically because the visuals in the movie are already so rich and they're already so deep and there's just so much going on that he felt like he overwhelmed the movie with his music. I wish I could find that interview to cite it, but um, but otherwise, check out the book Gilliam on Gilliam. It also is a pretty neat book if you're interested at all in Terry Gilliam's movies. Um, I never found the movie, you know, too loud and too in your face as such, although I can understand how it might annoy others, you know, since it can be a little... Um, like I said, off the wall and nonsensical. Um, but I think I was probably just too enamored of the music and, and, and too enamored of the visuals um, and their audaciousness. Um, and I think that Michael Kamen really swung for the fences in this, uh, in this score. I think, I think it really represents, like I said, um, a, a great cross-section of so much that he can do um, and so much of his immense talent as a composer. Um, in fact, I think that, you know, the music and his approach to it nicely sort of ties in with the character of Baron Munchausen in this movie. It's no holds barred. There's no apologies for who he is and how he wants to be remembered. That's how the Baron sort of lives his life. And I find that in all of Michael Kamen's music, actually, that he wears his heart on his sleeve unapologetically. He's sharing what he's feeling at all times through his music. Um, and you'll hear that here and in Robin Hood and, um, you know, uh, Mr. Holland's opus. I always find his music so effusive and just, and like I said, it's, it's, um, and there's always, you know, a hard on sleeve quality to his music. I think the man, um, who we unfortunately lost, um, about, uh, 10 years ago, um, I think he, um, felt big and he, he composed big and he was just a, a larger than life character and it really came out in his music and, you know, I think he wanted to share all of what he was feeling, you know, at all times. And I think that's a story worth, you know, hearing. I think that his music is worth hearing. And you can certainly hear that in his score for The Adventures of Baron Munchausen uh, from 1988. Coming up in the next segment is my conversation with uh, my friend and fellow fan, George S. Nader, where we're going to talk about uh, Alan Silvestri's score for Who Framed Roger Rabbit, also from 1988. Welcome, everybody. Uh, back to the show. Um, again, this is a Score to Settle a podcast about movie and TV music. And uh, I do have a guest today. Uh, my guest is George S. Nader. That's the, me. The S is important. It stands for super. <laughs> we'll go with that. <laughs> um, George is a, a fellow fan and a, a longtime friend. And uh, I wanted him here to... Uh, talk about a couple topics and, you know, um, kind of, you know, pick a favorite particular memorable score, uh, soundtrack album to, uh, to talk about. And, uh, and so I wanted to, to hear from him, uh, uh, about that, but go ahead and introduce yourself, George. Well, the first thing I'd like to say is that the, uh, pavement check that you gave me was wonderful for it to be here today. Thank oh, you. no, no there's nothing. <laughs> uh, that was, that's the only bad joke I'll tell. Sorry. Uh, I'm very glad to be here. I'm very excited about this show and, uh, it's a topic near and dear to my heart. And as Brian said, we've been friends for a long time, so I'm, I'm thrilled to be here. Well, I'm glad that you were able to do this. 
Um, so first off, the one thing that, you know, when you and I talked about being on the show is sort of like what was a momentous, you know, album or movie or score for you that kind of was either started your you know interest or was just early on in those days. And the, uh, the album, the soundtrack that you selected uh, is... Who Framed Roger Rabbit by Alan Silvestri. 1988. <laughs> it's a classic, folks. It's a classic. Um, yeah, no, I, I have always loved this movie. I've always loved this soundtrack. It wasn't the first soundtrack I ever heard. It wasn't the first soundtrack I ever loved. But when I think about it, the the love for soundtracks and scoring and then my lifelong admiration for that art form really can be tied back to this album. When I, we got Who Framed Roger Rabbit on VHS the year it came out. It was one of three videos that were given to us uh, for Christmas, my brothers and I. The other one was Batman. The other one was The Little Mermaid for some reason. Um, we all think that was for my sister, really. But, uh, <laughs> but as a result, we grew up loving those movies. We watched the hell out of them. We listened to the music out of all of those. And Roger Rabbit was always, I think, my favorite of the three because of the very different styles of music that are incorporated in the album, very different you know, characteristics and traits that each of the characters have that are tied to each of the themes in the film. And it just became very memorable for me. I, uh, I played the trumpet for 10 years, so the heavy feature of the trumpet in the score was always very special to me. And I'm a lifelong lover of jazz. So right. that all those elements of that coalesced and made this like my choice when you asked me about this. I thought, of course, I'm going to choose this. Yeah, I mean, and, and obviously you can you can talk to this as well, but it's an extremely varied exactly score. yeah i mean it's not just one boring track of the same style of music not that that's a bad thing either but <laughs> it's like every single track there's something different that's special that's unique to appreciate and, and i love that because maybe because i have adhd and and the stimulation involved with all of that like it's a different kind of style i mean it's almost like the thing is on shuffle no matter what you do and and i adore that no that's a really good point i didn't think about the fact that yeah it's it's uh because it moves from it's not, and and part of it is not just orchestral, um, you know, standard orchestral, but some of it is has to mimic a Looney Tunes, Carl Stalling type exactly. of orchestral yeah. work. So it's it's extremely busy, fast paced, catching exactly. every sync point, and then other you know sort of modern day orchestral mm-hmm. uh, technique as well. What's interesting about it to me is, like you say, there, there's very much a Looney Tunes influence to it. I mean, the first track is that Maroon Cartoons logo, which is absolutely the, the spiritual descendant of the Looney Tunes intro. And, and I love that. And, you know, but the, the more thematic, more musical elements to it that you would find in other scores, especially other Alan Silvestri scores, you know, those are very powerful and they're very melodic and they're very memorable, you know. Uh, another element that I really love about it, and it's very, I think, appropriate to this film, a lot of the tracks, while being very musical and very thematic and, and melodic, also carry a, a evocative sound effect element. You know, there's 
several tracks in there where there's some action happening in it, I always think of like a train barreling down the tracks, you know, <laughs> or, or you think of uh, the cool detective with the saxophone, you know, or the sultry Hollywood starlet, you know, with the, the bass line. It's, it's, it's very evocative in that way, in the best way that scores can be. And that's another thing I love about it. Was there a, do you remember, like, in terms of, was it the first time you watched it that it struck out, that it kind of stuck out to you, or was it, oh. like, after multiple viewings, or <laughs> well, like, oh, this scene, The first that. time I saw this movie, I was nine years old, oh, yeah, and I did not understand half the jokes. No. <laughs> <laughs> but I remember that score, and, and it definitely did stick out to me, like, this is something special. Huh. And then, at that point, did, so, obviously, it took you a while before you went back and found... Yeah either other Alan Silvestri or, or other movies, you know, mm -hmm. and then their composers, right. you know, after that. Well, I think the first, uh, the first soundtrack I really paid any attention to and was really blown away by was a TV score from, from Star Trek The Next Generation. And Which I'm one sure, was that? I'm sure you'll know exactly what I'm talking Probably. about. The best of both worlds. <laughs> oh, yeah. And, I mean, anyone who watches Star Trek knows what that's about and what that did. And that led me to other soundtracks. It led me to a greater understanding of how soundtracks can be done so powerfully i mean i come from a musical family my mom is a musician my brother and my sister and her husband are all music teachers one of them is a music prodigy he played music all the time growing up i know every word to every song of the little mermaid because of this and it's it's a unique you know <laughs> trivia fact about me but uh i'm sure someone will put you to the test yeah god i hope not <laughs> i have a terrible <laughs> singing voice um but but the the reason this is important why I'm mentioning it is because most of my childhood was listening to classical music on vinyl that my parents had, you know, um, or, or, you know, the big hits like Saturday Night Fever or Beat It or, or I'm sorry, or Thriller, you know, those kinds of albums. But we had 2001. We had uh, The Planets, you know, we had a lot of these very um, uh, uh, well-known albums and, and uh, songs on vinyl that lent themselves very well to motion picture scoring or in my imagination at least as a child I could think oh this would be great in the background of a movie oh totally and so from that point you know I was never really a big classical music person as a kid but as I've gotten older I've come to appreciate it and then with this with Star Trek with a lot of the other soundtracks I've listened to in my life you know obviously it, it, it has expanded that horizon uh, Star Trek was a big gateway to that there's a lot of great music in those shows and films and Alan Silvestri especially you know there's a lot of this in Roger Rabbit that, you know, you can kind of see the, the it's sort of the the lesser well-known cousin to Back to the Future, you know, and <laughs> there are elements in this score, you know, like there's a whole Western, you know, motif that goes on when oh, right. Eddie Valiant gets his old rev cartoon revolver out and the cartoon bullets are these old grizzled cowboys and it sounds just like stuff from Back to the Future 3. That's so know? funny. I forgot it because it is, it's like, a, it's and it's a moment of a Looney Tunes approach because it's so scene specific 
and it goes it has a little western theme mm-hmm. and then it like briefly goes into sort of the stereotypical mock indian music right yeah um and, and it's but it's something a carl stalling would have oh, caught totally. but it's... what's interesting is it's part of the live action part of the movie right. and not like the intro cartoon exactly of the movie. i mean it, it for me it, it breathed a lot of life into the cartoon characters in the film when they were interacting with the live action stuff you know and like you say yeah it's totally something that would have been in the original looney tunes that maybe today we might not do because it's a little insensitive but in terms of the world building of this film and the period and the era in which it was set it it worked very well completely appropriate for the 40s yeah yeah, for that and and it i mean in a way it's like i don't know it's you can't help a musical shorthand right exactly it's like i mean people pull out the pentatonic scale for when it's chinese music and people say it sounds chinese i'm like Mm -hmm. well it's the pentatonic scale but it's like it's a shorthand i mean in music theory in high school we talked about these things these instant tropes and music that you know it's some technical thing that musicians all know and understand but to someone who maybe isn't as well versed as you know a music teacher or or someone who studies music a good period of their life you know they know exactly what the mechanical and musical purpose of this trick is but to you and i it might be you know it's like the wayne's world we all know that means it's a flashback or it's a fantasy but there's some musical jargon for that that actually means something important that has nothing to do with movies or tv you know and i think it's arpeggiation thank you see like but, i don't know yeah, what i'm talking but about but somebody can certainly correct me on if i'm wrong um so from a practical standpoint though like when you you saw the movie you liked the music though you probably didn't rush out and buy the album at nine years old i couldn't i was broke i was eight years old Brian. so so when did you actually realize what age like when you like oh i found it in a store in a record store well uh i got into the habit my dad was a journalist and we had a lot of tape recorders laying around and stop me if you've heard this before brian uh (laughs) i got into the habit of shushing my younger siblings and hoping that everything in the house would quiet down so i could use the tape recorder that he gave me to record random bits of music from movies and tv that i loved as a kid and i have just as many tapes where my brother decides to chime in at the last minute ruining some track you know and there's one i have actually where i was uh I was listening. I was trying to record something from Star Trek Two. Some it's right when Spock dies. Spoiler alert! Sorry, he dies. Get over it. <laughs> he comes back. It's okay. Uh, it's the last piece in the film when they're looking at the torpedo on Genesis, and and it's this soaring strings, and you're just realizing what happens. And for whatever reason, the tape cut out at this point, and I still have this tape. <laughs> the tape cut out, so it ends Star Trek Two, and it cuts to the A team. It's the weirdest mishmash, but for some reason it works. I don't understand it. And you haven't done that as a YouTube I, You know, I don't know why. I need to, like, digitize it. Now, I'll send it to you. You can include it in this if you want. No, don't mm. do that. It's horrible. Uh, but the point is, it worked. It's amazing. Uh, no, when so I recorded songs on tape, and, and I had a pretty good library about them. Um, I became a fan of uh, the theme song from Dallas, as Brian will tell you. I love that song. Yeah, that's that's been pretty much a mainstay, I think, in, in uh, our conversations. One year he gave me a birthday card that played the Dallas theme song. It was amazing. Uh, wow, I totally blocked that out. <laughs> so uh, I would record songs on tape, and uh, as I got older, I started buying CDs because CDs were the thing. And, you know, I got a bunch of Danny Elfman stuff because he was really big at the time when I started discovering soundtracks on CD. And then uh, I would say it was probably around 2002, I was working in the admissions office at my college, and I was on, at work on a Saturday giving tours, and we rotated on Saturdays. Someone would stay back in the office, the other three would go give tours. And this happened to be my Saturday to be in the office. And it was like in January, February, it was just, uh, more like in March, it was just starting to get warm, but not really warm in Virginia. And 
there were some boarders down the street and I was bored waiting for this last tour to get back and I started Googling stuff and I thought, when is this album gonna ever come out? Is it even out? Can I find it on eBay? What's going on? And somehow, through some miracle, I found out that there was one copy of this album that had been put out for Who Framed Roger Rabbit, the score I'd been searching for for years. One copy of it sitting on the shelf at the borders, literally a mile away from my college campus. <laughs> so I called them right away and I said, how late are you open? And is this in stock? And sure enough, it was a Saturday. They were open till 11 and they had it and they held it for me and I went and I bought it and I was a very happy camper. And I have listened to this album ever since. I so it. was it a revelation for you like after all those years? Because I mean, I, I think as far as soundtrack fans, we all have that where, as I've talked about on my blog before and, and on the podcast, like not everything had an album. So like right. sometimes you just, ha- the only way you could hear the music was by watching the movie. Or taping it off TV. Or taping it off TV. And so sometimes either A, it finally gets released years later, or B, you just happened, it was out and you just never found a copy. And so the first time listening to it properly on a, on a cassette or a record or CD is surreal. Absolutely. I mean, I, I never forgot, because again, remember, we had the VHS tape and we watched it all the time. It was like a Christmas tradition for us to watch one of these movies every year. And one of my favorite things was the end credits for this film, where it ends with Porky Pig and the Looney Tunes logo, and then it cuts straight to the Sylvester score. Mm-hmm. And it, the Sylvester uh, score at the end of the film is, like most films at the time, it's kind of a compilation of all the major themes from the film, which each one is amazing. It's I love great. it. It's so good. It's and great. I wore that tape out. I mean, I, I was listening to that music all the time. And I may, must have recorded it off the TV at least a dozen times, hoping and trying and finding some way to get that analog cassette tape to record a clean, better version than the one I'd done before. And it, it, there's just something about it. And so, yeah, listening to it, there's certainly, with the advent of DVD and, and, and you know the proliferation of old TV shows and stuff on digital video, um, there were a lot of things I discovered uh, or rediscovered from my childhood. Um, and then with CDs, sort of the same thing. And there were some stinkers that didn't really quite hold up, but this was absolutely not one of them. This, the minute it started, it transported me right back to the old multiplex cinemas on Lee Highway in Virginia, where I grew up, and, and just relived that whole experience of watching that film again. You know, from there I started getting into other things like James Bond and, and other TV properties and films. And my mom, who was a musician uh, in her, you know, outside of her career, she, you know, really encouraged it in all of us. We all had to take a musical instrument. We all had to take band. It was this thing. It was not just to keep her boys in line. It was something that she thought would benefit us. And it absolutely did. And... Um, so from there, you know, got a lot of the jazz stuff. I got a lot of the classical music stuff as I got older. And uh, with Sylvester especially, you know, Forrest Gump, you know, I know a lot of people don't like that movie. I adore that film, partly because of the score, because I remember watching it when I was 14 and just being blown away by this very, you know, beautiful, subtle score. It was not anything like I expected, but I quite appreciated it. Uh, I'm, and I'm of the opinion that you can applaud a movie's 
score, even if you're not a fan of the movie itself. Um, so I think that's totally valid. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it led to Captain America, it led to the Avengers today, all these things. He's going to do, I think, the next Avengers film, which I have no problem with. And um, I'll probably date this episode. Eventually. Yeah, it's okay. That's fine. Sorry. When when this podcast is listened to by how many Avengers archivist. are there going to be? <laughs> yeah, exactly. They they realize we're on Avengers number seventeen. Did Sylvester's he not, been dead. He also, I'm so bad at this. I should know this. It's in my iTunes library. Didn't he also do Van Helsing? Yeah, I love that score. I love that score too. <laughs> that one is great because it's now again the album is short, <clears throat> so I know there's more music in the movie, but it obviously. But it's like the album is like 40 minutes like of nonstop. Right. It's just those Transylvanian <laughs> horses. I love it. <laughs> um, yeah. And it has a really, a really kick-ass theme. I'll have, to, I'll have to see about, you know, doing something about that one if yeah. I come back to Sylvester on another podcast. It's, it's just there's a lot of good stuff. And, of course, Back to the Future, all three of them. I mean, yeah, the same way this Roger Rabbit film kind of touched a variety of things, the Back to the Future films, obviously given the nature of those films and what they did, they covered a variety of kinds of music. Now, were you going to the record store like, I'm looking for this? Or oh, were you going the to the record time. store going, I'm time. just going to find whatever this I want? This was way before Google, you know, right. and, and eBay for me. And I was there was a, a CD store in our local mall back in Arlington, Virginia. And, and I would go in there all the time, walking home from school. I would make a pit stop going completely out of my way. I was like, what's on sale? What can I find? What's a good score that's out? And Silvestri, Williams... You know, uh, Goldsmith, where are these guys? Where, where can I find something? And it was never, you know, it was feast or famine a lot of the time. And, you know, I, there weren't a whole lot of used CD stores in my area for some reason, but it didn't even occur to me at the time, I think, to even check there because CDs were still relatively new. And, you know, I also had this weird thing. I was like, I'm not paying more than $15 for a CD. And some of them were way more than that at the time. And it, it, it lent itself to, you know, me being very picky about what I could find and what I would get. Um, Danny Elfman's Batman was another great one because, again, it, it people like to say it's operatic, and, and I get that, but it definitely goes into that fanfare and theme for Batman. And, I mean, my dad teases me all the time anytime that movie comes up because on TV because it doesn't matter how old I am, <laughs> you know. He'll walk in, and it's the end of the movie, and I'm standing there with my hands on my hips, staring off into the sky, just like Michael Keaton. His, his timing was so perfect that he would always come in at the end of the movie. My dad wow. is awesome like that. <laughs> but, yeah, the action cues, they, they, that's... That You're not alone thing. in that. A lot of us, I think, really wanted, went after that. And, now, and yeah, it's, it's, it was, a, for some reason, I, that's worth a whole other uh, you know, podcast is why was it the action music so much of us? I don't know. You know I, I have a selection of tracks on my phone that I listen to at the gym, and one of them is the Roger Rabbit, you know, train track thing that I was saying earlier. It sounds like a train bustling down the tracks. It's one of those tracks. Well, I, I, as my friend Todd Smith once said, when he I was playing him a Bernard Herman track uh, from North by Northwest, Jason and the Argonauts. Ah. And he said something about how this is heavy metal for film score geeks. Nice. And and because like sometimes it can be just absolutely out of control, you mm-hmm. know, and and rhythmic and uh, and Bernard Herrmann in that score again. That's a that's tops. Um. So the other you know um, segment that I that I wanted to uh, that in, you know wanted to include in the in the guest segment. Well, I also want to say it was there a, other points on your you know that you wanted to make about who framed roger rabbit before we move on there is just one other point um well two one it's got a lot of jazz i love jazz it's very good film jazz that you can kind of 
remember, you know, jazz is so unpredictable and it's supposed to be. You know, you want to give the musician the freedom to go do whatever they want to do. It's like when you have a director and an actor and at the last take the director says, do this one for you, you know, and just, they're going to have fun with it. That's basically what jazz is. And it's tough in a film because you kind of need to get from point A to B and in a certain period of time. And so with this, it's very deftly done. I mean, you get all the kind of building blocks of jazz. There's that walking bass line. There's the trumpet. There's the... The, the saxophones and the percussion uh, rhythm section and it's just great and I love that you know and, and it's for me it's always great when I can remember a jazzy theme and I can hum along with it or I can you know remember it because my memory is very well but with this it's great so that's one point the other point really is much like with a lot of other films um, but not as much it feels like lately there's definitely a theme that gets assigned to everybody in this film and the one I re always really appreciated was the, the jazzy theme for Eddie Valiant. It's that soulful, mellifluous, you know, uh, trumpet when, you know, this the, you know the scene I'm talking about where he falls asleep at his desk remembering his brother. And it's just this, these guys were cool detectives. They had fun. They were good at what they did. And it's this nostalgia and it's this heartache because of what happened to his brother. And then it just, when he wakes up and he gets this new case, it clicks right into that walking base. He's on the case and he's going to figure out what's going on. And that, to me, just captured perfectly the idea of the old 40s film noir detective gumshoe who had to figure out some seedy case and reminded me of Chinatown. It reminded me of Casablanca and the Maltese Falcon, that kind of era of film, and it's something I always loved. So. Well, I appreciate you, um, you know, uh, bringing the score to uh, to the attention of everybody. Oh, I'm um, happy to. And uh, yeah, because it's I, like I said, it's a great one to talk about. Um, the other the other uh, exciting part of uh, my guest segment that I trying to uh, make a habit of is something I call um, movie music mixtape. So what I would like to do, and hopefully this will all work out, but I'd like to be able to shuffle. Uh, what's in my collection, I don't know what it's going to play, and see if, A, do we recognize it? I will, because it's my collection. B, what do we think of it? Do we like it? Do you know of it? And, you know, any of your thoughts on that one. I make no promises. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's all right. There, yeah, no, no promises on this one. Um, I should be all set up here. Thank you. 
Do you need a hint? A hint would be helpful because I do know it. I just don't know what it is. Um, you were just talking about his music earlier when your dad walks into the end of the movie. Oh, okay. So it's something Danny Elfman's Pee Wee's Big Adventure? Yep. There you go. Love it. Do you own it? I don't, but I love that movie. Yes. That's it's a great. good one. It's great. Yeah. One of my favorites. And uh, it, one of those things where I didn't get it for a long time. Everybody seemed to have started with Batman, with right. Elfman. I mean, I think everyone of our age group, mm-hmm. the first thing, unless you were like really with it in 88, you picked up Beetlejuice. But mm-hmm. like for the most part, we all. I'm sorry, which movie? Beetlejuice. One more time. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> sorry, I couldn't resist. No, I love that. Um, Everybody started with Elfman, so it was, we kind of had to work backwards. And I didn't, you know, right. get you know Pee Wee's Big Adventure until like years later. Mm-hmm. And I think it, part of it was on a compilation. There was a great right. um, compilation album he did in 1990, and had like a seven-minute mm-hmm. suite from it. And that's all. Yeah, I had. that is one sadly lacking from my collection. So I will have to uh, amend that. <laughs> yeah, there's a, there's some there's some good releases of that one. Um, all right, let's see what's uh, what's next here. Um... I have this album. This, I believe, is uh, Mission Impossible 2. Yes? Yep. Or Mask of Zorro. Mission Impossible 2? Okay. I'm thinking. Remind me, isn't. Who did Mission, uh, Mask of Zorro? James Horner. James Horner, okay. Yeah, no, this is MI2. And and who did the music for MI2? MI2. Oh, come on. Mr. Hans Zimmer. Yeah, there and you go. There, there's. Uh, I know a lot of people who are not fans of that version of the MI Mission Impossible theme song, but you know, I like it. I did not. I didn't see the movie. Um, I didn't see the movie until like last year. I don't even think I owned the album until a couple years ago. Uh, I go through phases of being really into Hans, and then you know, into Zimmer, and then I just go a while without yeah. listening to him. And, but like, I think I was in a heavy Zimmer period, and I was just going to Amoeba Records uh, here in. Hollywood on Sunset Boulevard and just finding what else could I find and I picked up Mission Impossible 2 knew that it was more rock and that um, you know that particular piece as well that real Spanish uh, style mm-hmm. which is just incredible oh yeah um, and I just was blown away by it I thought it was just really kick ass it's it, I was I think let's see that movie came out in 2000 so I was about 21 22 and not I, to give away your age no, not typical of my age at all. I mean, <laughs> not to give away my age. No, I uh, this is I'm Hollywood. A very, I'm a very youthful person. Uh, then again, we are recording this in 2001, so it's okay. <laughs> uh, no, I, uh, I I I bought that album, the the music from it, inspired by. I, I bought that movie on DVD. I saw it like three or four times in the theater. The Mission Impossible Mission two. Impossible two, and at the time I loved it. I was just like, yes, 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 yes. It wasn't anything like the old show used to be, and I was okay with that. And my opinion has changed a little bit since then. I think Ghost Protocol is the best of the films they've done in retrospect. But I again, I, I, have, I have a soft place in my heart for this film. Uh, you know, again, I came at it without having any uh, watching it last year for the first time. I'm like, what I thought was great about it: one, it's stylish. Yeah. And two, it's it is definitely more about the style than than the plot. Oh, totally. What I appreciated about it is all all the other films seem to be <laughs> that Ethan Hunt is somehow on the run like something happens and it's like he's his own agency is coming after him and i feel like north by northwest it's it's, but it's like i feel like it's the only movie where he's given a mission he goes on that mission he completes that mission exactly and everything is still great and at the end it's like he's not ever like 
we're going to have to get Ethan Hunt. He's our agent. Right. Like, nope, he's nope. on a mission. It's he it's it. basically like, it's Thunderball. Right. James Bond is assigned this mission. He goes on it. He completes the mission. And exactly. I think that's the only Mission Impossible movie that rolls out like that. I think you're right, actually. <laughs> and, and, you know, I understand why some people don't like it. I mean, my my one of my best friends back home, Will, he and I, when we were kids, we both wanted to work in movies and... and We'd, we'd talk about all these projects we we're going to do someday, and, and we were all about the action films as kids. And this was one of those action films where it was just like we would just pour over the special features on those DVDs to see how did they do this? How did they make this stunt happen? How, how did they come to this point where they decided to include this? And, yeah, there's a ton of insane stuff in this film. You know, There's a ton of stuff that you know certainly doesn't hold up today in term, from a writing standpoint. But it's Cruise being Cruise. Which, you know, love or hate the guy, you know, he knows how to make an entertaining film. And it's Mission Impossible, so it's got that great staccato Mission Impossible dump, dump, right. dump, dump, dump throughout the whole thing. And right. it's hard not to love that. Uh, but I appreciate you coming on the show. Oh, I appreciate you. I'm very you know, happy to be here. Uh, sharing this has all been of your a lot of fun. I I'm hope, glad. Uh, hope you will be able to find something useful out of all of this. And uh, I'm sure. I will always be happy to come back. Well, thank you. I will be happy to if have you. If I back. can invite myself over, just like I just have. <laughs> <laughs> we will be sure to make that happen. We'll make it a, a, a yeah. We'll we'll make it an open invitation. That's fair. I like that. All right. Thanks very much, George. Thank you, Brian. Oh, and I should ask one more question in terms of if if do you if you want people to find you in social media uh no i don't okay no, then... I'm, I'm totally kidding i'm totally kidding um i'm on social media my uh find me by my name george samir nader that's s-a-m-i-r it's my dad's name and uh under the username g nader on twitter and mutarada on instagram that's m as in michael u-t-a-r-a-d-a all right look forward to hearing from you thanks very much george thank you brian I'd like to again thank George for participating in this episode and sharing his stories of being a fan of movie music. Uh, of course, I want to thank everyone for listening today. As always, I hope you found it both fun and informative. Music on today's show uh, included The Adventures of Baron Munchausen, composed by Michael Kamen uh, from 1988, and also music from Who Framed Roger Rabbit, uh, composed by Alan Silvestri, also from 1988. If you'd like to send any comments or questions, you can email the show at escortacetlepodcast at gmail.com. You can find the blog at escortasettle.blogspot.com and on Facebook at Escortasettle. Thanks again for listening.